The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. That's what it is here on SFM. It's the Enviro Show. It's the uh, greenest show on the station, arguably. I'm Nancy Richards. Kim Winter is uh, producer and Derek Fordyce is at the controls. And we're all with you through until 10 o'clock. So let me tell you what we have in the lineup. Well, the Philippines disaster, the worst apparently in all history. Linked to climate change? Well, we're going to be talking to a systems ecologist from the CSIR, that's the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. He's Dr. Bob Scholes, and we'll be getting his thoughts on that. Also on climate change, we'll be talking to Oxfam's economic justice campaign advisor on the same, who's presently at the COP19 in Warsaw, so we'll find out what's going down there. And uh, just as I keep saying, keeping our ear to the ground, to what extent is talking on your cell phone the cause of nickel allergies, or sometimes known as cell phone allergies? Hmm, interesting one, that. In our green goodie feature to, uh, to close, we'll be checking in on a World Wildlife Fund conference that's happening tomorrow. We'll find out uh, what they plan to be discussing. But to start with, uh, we have another in our Environmental Leaders series, South African-born Kumi Naidu, International Executive Director of Greenpeace. He's back home here in South Africa, very briefly, and we'll be finding out more about him, so stay with us. Just a little bit of eco-info. I thought I'd just share this with you. One of the things that popped into our mailbox, don't forget, enviro at safm.co.za if you want to get in touch with us direct. Um, I had a, a message from a gentleman by the name of Cloggy who says... I just want to know if you can help me with these. I've written a 10-part television reality show about recycling. Pitched it at the Gauteng Film Commission. They're interested in it, but I have to raise the funding for the programme and for broadcasting. My problem is my company is still new and doesn't have any proven track record or a valuable product in order to attract finances. Well, um, Cloggy, if anybody uh, gets in touch with us, I'm going to suggest they get in touch with us and maybe they can get in turn, we can get in touch with you. So if you'd like to find out a little bit more about Cloggy's uh, 10 part TV reality show on recycling, let us know enviro at safm.co.za. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook and we've got that up right now. So if you want to let us know what's going on, it's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And just last but not least, whilst I have your attention on all these matters, don't forget the show is podcast. So if you'd like uh, anything, you'd like to hear anything once again, check the SAFM website. It's www.safm.co.za. Look for the date, look for the Enviro Show. And hey, presto, stay tuned. The Enviro Show. Starting off the Enviro Show tonight with another one in our Environmental Leaders series, Kumi Naidu. He's International Executive Director of Greenpeace. And uh, in a minute, we're going to be talking to him to find out a little bit more about the 30-odd Greenpeace activists and a couple of freelance journalists, formerly known as the Arctic 30, who've been detained for over 50 days in a Russian prison, and that's for peacefully protesting Gazprom's efforts to drill for oil in the Arctic. So a bit of a thorny one, that one. But first, with the... So it's worth really, I think, knowing a little bit about Kumi Naidu himself. Goodness me, he's been with Greenpeace for a number of years, involved in their development work uh, in Africa, and he also became a board member of Greenpeace Africa when it opened its offices in 2008. He's, a, he's got a long list of interesting things that he's done, also served as chair of the Civil Society Alliance Global Campaign for Climate Action, and as a young man, he became involved in the liberation struggle at the age of 15, and as a result was expelled from school. He was arrested, charged for violating a state of emergency regulations. He went to exile in the UK, became a Rhodes Scholar, got a doctorate in political sociology. 
And back here in South Africa, he organized a men's march against domestic violence. He was Secretary General and CEO of Civicus, that's the World Alliance for Citizen Participation, and also founded the founding chair of the Global Call to Action Against Poverty. And finally, he was appointed by the former Secretary General of the United Nations to the Eminent Persons Panel on the United Nations Civil Society Relations. So certainly a very strong activist credentials and someone who, it seems from all of that, someone who responds very much to the issues that are at hand. So how come the green issues right now? Well, Greenpeace, I'm sure you know of them, on their website, their, their mandate, as it were, says Greenpeace exists because this fragile earth deserves a voice. It needs solutions. It needs change. It needs action. We have Kumi Naidu on the line to tell us all about it. Mr. Naidu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and greetings to your listeners. It's a pleasure and welcome back to South Africa. I think you're just here on a fleeting visit. Yes, I'm here for a conference of a range of civil society organizations that have come together to look at from around the world look at how we better connect the struggle for poverty, against poverty, climate change, human rights, and so on, because historically these have been very siloed struggles, and we are now looking at how do we intersect those struggles, because we think that way we can have more impact for all the issues that we are trying to work on. Yes, you yourself are something of an embodiment of connections because you've been involved in so many uh, areas where people are voiceless. And it, it seems that your mission in life is to bring all these things together. Yes, uh, when I was at Civicus in my previous job and before that when I was the head of the South African NGO Coalition, I very much argued for us to break down the unnecessary barriers that exist between different parts of civil society. So I think that... Um, civil society needs to get much better at focusing on the much larger number of things that unite us and agree to respectfully disagree around some of the more tactical difference that we might have. And I feel very passionately that we are running out of time on climate change and we need to maximize the unity of ordinary people so that we can actually encourage our governments and business leaders to act with the urgency that both the science says we need to act as well as the rise in extreme weather events like what we saw in the Philippines mm. is suggesting that we need to act. And, and it's not as if climate change is going to hit us in the future, it's hitting us now. Yes, yes, we don't really need to wait until it really impacts. Civil society, it's, it's kind of civil society versus the government, really, isn't it? I mean, we're going to be talking to somebody who's at COP19 in just a minute and also going to be hearing about the Philippines disaster. But it, it feels like that. It feels like civil society needs to stand up against the government who have the muscle and the power and the money in many cases and say, this is what we want. Yes, that's true to a point. But actually, it's a little bit more complicated because democracy was supposed to balance the wallet with the ballot, meaning the power that rich people have was to be balanced by the voice of ordinary people through the ballot box. But if we are brutally honest with ourselves, in a majority of countries in the world today, we have the form of democracy without the substance of democracy. So, for example, if you take the United States, which would like to see itself as a promoter of democracy, today the United States is the best democracy money can buy. And if you look at which money buys that democracy, it's oil, coal, gas, nuclear, military, and generally industries that are driving us to environmental destruction. So, uh, so it's not simply that uh, political leaders are 
not wanting to act. In fact, most political leaders, including heads of state that I meet with and so on, in the one-to-one discussions, they agree with you. They agree that the science is telling us we need to act and so on, but too many of them have been captured, too many governments have been captured by the interests of polluting big companies. So, like in the United States, the oil, coal, and gas companies fund between three and eight full-time lobbyists for every single member of the U.S. Congress to make sure that no progressive climate legislation goes through. So our fight Mm. is not just with governments who are not willing to act, and many governments would like to act, but they are compromised by the enormous influence that big polluting corporations have on governance, and that has to change. Mm. So it's almost like they're putting their mouths mouths on their actions where the money is. Unfortunately, and and the way many of our election processes and all work, especially, you know, in a country like the United States, where you have, which has been one of the countries that has been holding us back on climate action, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, there's been an absolute capture of the political process by uh, big moneyed interests. And, And to get elected... Uh, it's almost very, very hard not to actually have money coming from big ministers. You remember when President Obama ran in his first elections, he was relying more on small donations and so on. And in the second election, he did exactly what previous presidential candidates did, which was, you know, raised tons and tons of money from the corporate sector. And therefore, you find, in fact, he's been pretty timid on climate change um, in terms of given the urgency and given that he gets it, he understands it, but he also has to be careful not to upset, upset his too funders. much of his donors. Yeah, yeah, it becomes beholden. Oh, it's dirty work at the crossroads, isn't it? Yeah. But coming back to what you said right at the beginning, you know, that the, the, import, the import of uh, the issues of environmental change and imbalance, it, nothing could be more important. The elders, as you probably know, were here in South Africa, they were in Cape Town, uh-huh. just recently, the group of elders. And yes, I know. for them also, uh, climate change, matters environmental, were the problem facing the planet today. Well, let's put it this way, right? Uh, Let's take slavery, colonialism, women being denied the right to vote, apartheid, civil rights in the United States, and many, many other struggles for justice, historically and presently. I would argue that, in fact, all those struggles affected people in one country or part of one country. Uh, Okay, denying women the right to vote affected half the population of the world, but Climate change is actually more important than all of those struggles put together because uh, what is at stake is not saving the planet, by the way, which, you know, we at Greenpeace sometimes say that, most environmentalists say that, but actually the planet itself does not need saving Mm -hmm. because if we warm this planet on the rate that we are doing right now and it becomes impossible in 100-plus years for humanity to survive on this planet, then actually the planet will still be here. We will be gone, but the planet will still be here. In fact, the forests will grow back and the oceans will replenish and so on, and actually the planet will get back to a better shape. What is at stake and what the struggle on climate change is about is a struggle for, for the right of humanity to exist on this planet for generations and generations to come in a mutually interdependent uh, relationship with nature. And to put it differently, this struggle 
is uh, about securing our children and grandchildren's futures. And very interestingly, I'll tell you, some of the CEOs of big companies where we tend to have better success in pushing them using morality are actually CEOs who are in the second marriages and have young children. I, I, I say to them, you know, what are you going to tell your kids when they look you in the eye 10, 15 years from now when climate impacts will be 10 times as bad as it is now, given the trajectory we're on? Uh, and actually, I don't want to say which companies exactly, but interestingly, that when you talk, talk about put children at the center of the conversation, it does actually have an you know, a, a positive impact because basically the current generation of adult and politic, uh, uh, politi- adult political and business leaders are governing and behaving with no sense of intergenerational solidarity. It's as if we don't have children and they won't have children and so on, you know. And we are raping this planet uh, of its natural ecological assets, assets that we need for humanity's survival. You know, take forests, for example, tropical forests, like in the Amazon or yeah, in Africa, one of the second most precious forests, which is the Congo Basin Forest. In the past, people used to talk about forests like, oh, you only worry about forests if you like trees and you like the biodiversity that sits in it, important mm-hmm. as it is in its own right. But today, more and more people understand that forests are the lungs of the planet, that they capture and store the carbon that comes from oil, coal, and gas. And so, um, you know, thankfully, there's growing awareness around the world, but I have to confess that we are running out of time, and we have to get greater urgency, and we have to move beyond talking about moving to clean energy and, and doing it. And in Africa, including in South Africa, we have an abundance of renewable energy potential, not just solar and wind, which is humongous, uh, massive, but also geothermal, biomass, and so on, including we're a continent. We're also a big island uh, in the mm-hmm. sense the yeah. whole continent is surrounded by water, and that gives you options for uh, wind-based, uh, sorry, um, sea-based wind farms and so on. So the potential is massive. What is lacking, and, and the technology and the understanding is not perfect, but it's actually very developed. What is lacking is political will, and I think, sadly, the political will is not there because of the short-term profits that big polluting companies can make and the you know, bribes and so on they can give to corrupt um, politicians in power. Interesting. You talk about what's required is political will, because I've got a quote that I was going to use later, and it's uh, from the Minister of Environment of Poland, who says, we need to be prepared for nine billion people on this planet. We all deserve a decent and secure life. By being creative, the world can reduce greenhouse gas emissions while creating jobs, promoting economic growth and ensuring better living standards. Where there is a will, there's a way. Um, So he says, and, and absolutely... The way you talk about doing it, just doing it, and what you do at Greenpeace there and what you personally have always done, but particularly what Greenpeace do, is they, they just do it. Activism is their their weaponry. Presently, you have about 30 people, 28 uh, of your own Greenpeace warriors, if you like, and, and a couple of journalists who are in prison in Russia for their peaceful protest. What's the status there? Can, can you give us a synopsis of why they were there, what's the reason for keeping them there, and what's planned to be done? Well, the rig that we attempted to do a peaceful protest uh, at is in the Russian Arctic. It's in 
Uh, it's the first uh, oil project in the Arctic, in the ocean, that is about to start. So last year, I led a protest at that same rig. We were there for seven days, engaged in a range of peaceful protests. Uh, most of the Russian people, for example, didn't even know that this rig was there. Most people in the world didn't know that this was going to be the first uh, sort of crossing the line, if you want, into starting for drilling in the Arctic. Now, if there's an oil spill there, and the weather changes, you know, from the summer months to the winter months, the ocean will freeze, lock the oil in the ocean, and will cause tremendous, tremendous impacts. But more importantly, why is the Arctic important? You know, last year when I was there, it's a very close, very, very, very cold place for an African to go, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even in the summer months. And, you know, so, so some of my friends at home were saying, you know, what has Arctic got to do with Africa? Basically, the Arctic sea ice serves as a refrigerator or air conditioner of the planet. It regulates uh, global climate. And what we are seeing because of the warming of the planet, in fact, last year when we were engaged in a protest there, it was the day the Arctic sea ice minimum level, uh, you know, was breached, the lowest level of Arctic sea ice. And so what we are doing is what happens in the Arctic contributes to sea level rise uh, with the melting of the glaciers in particularly Greenland, but also is uh, completely distorting our climate system. So that's why we have prioritized taking peaceful action at this particular rig. Last year, the Coast Guard was there. They observed us. They saw that we were no threat to personal property, and they did not intervene. This year, our activists went around the 18th of September to engage in exactly the same protests, and this time we got a completely disproportionate response. Our inflatable boats were fired at. The Russian Coast Guards came with knives. Uh, they arrested our act two activists who were attempting to uh, climb on the outside of the rig to put up a banner. And then um, within uh, 12, 18 hours, they came with the helicopter with masked men and dropped onto the ship. The ship itself was in the Arctic Sunrise, as it's called, is, uh, was in international waters. And they um, um, seized the ship. They asked the captain to uh, sail the ship to Murmansk, which is an Arctic town, uh, four days sailing. And the captain, interestingly, I don't know whether you remember, uh, some of your listeners I'm sure will, that 27 years ago, French intelligence bombed a Greenpeace ship in Auckland Arbor in New Zealand, which was going to um, protest nuclear testing in the Pacific Ocean. And the captain of that ship, uh, which was bombed 27 years ago, was the same captain of the Arctic Sunrise now, and he knows international maritime law better than most people in the world. And he told the um, Coast Guards when they um, boarded the ship, what you've done is illegal. It's against the, international, the United Nations law of the sea to actually board us, and I refuse to cooperate. So they had to tow the ship for three days. He refused to sail it. And then when folks got to Mermanx, they were put into prison and given two months pre-trial detention, which ends on 24th of November. They were first charged with piracy, which is completely ridiculous. Even the president of the Russian Human Rights Council, who is the President Putin's official human rights advisor, said 
the authorities should have just as well charged Greenpeace for trying to gang-rape the oil platform because it would be an equally ridiculous charge as piracy. And President Putin himself said, clearly we're not pirates. And, um, and by the way, there's a beautiful quotation from President Putin from 2000 when he was going to Canada for the first time. He was interviewed by a Canadian newspaper where the journalist asked him, so if you were not president, what would you like to be? And you would never guess what his answer was. Mm. And I'm quoting, he said, I have always been impressed by those brave, courageous environmental activists who go on those small boats and confront big military and industrial ships who are engaged in environmental destruction. You can only feel empathy for them. And when I leave the presidency, joining them would be a honorable thing to do, unquote. Okay. So, so anyway... Uh, our activists have been held since the 18th of September under really difficult conditions in Mamang's prison, 23 hours in solitary confinement. Access to clean drinking water has been a challenge. Food has been a challenge, particularly for our colleagues who are vegetarian or vegan. And uh, bail was denied. We went to the courts and appealed bail. It was denied again. And then, but we have been waging a very, very strong global campaign with Nobel Peace Prize uh, winners, uh, various heads of state and so on, calling President Putin religious leaders and so on, and the piracy charges have been, piracy carries 15 years in prison. Mm. So they've now downgraded the charges to hooliganism, which carries seven years in prison, oh. right? And so that, that, that's the charges that my colleagues are facing. Uh, that's a charge I would have been facing if they did the same thing last year because I did engaged in exactly the same actions. I wrote to President Putin two weeks after they were arrested when our bail appeals were denied, saying, I'm prepared to come and serve as guarantor. I realize uh, if you're taking this position against my colleagues, I did exactly the same actions last year. I'm prepared to come and face those. Uh, and they have basically said, well, President Putin's got nothing to do with it. There's a separation between, you know, the judiciary and the state, and uh, and uh, he cannot intervene, and that's the position they've taken consistently. The latest is that our colleagues have now been transported just a few days ago in a prison train. Uh, all 30 of them were put into a carriage, which is like what is used in Russia for transporting uh uh, you know, very dangerous criminals. They were transported to St. Petersburg. They arrived there just two days ago, and they are now being held in uh, St. Petersburg. We don't yet know the conditions, and we are waiting with a bated breath till 24th of April to see if the detention will be extended. The one other thing I should say is that the Dutch government, because the Greenpeace ships are registered in Holland, they sail under a Dutch flag. And the Dutch government, the reading of the international maritime law is exactly as Greenpeace, and the Dutch government took the Russian government to court in, at the International Law of the Sea Tribunal in Hamburg just a few days uh, last week. Uh, and the verdict on that case will be on the 22nd of this month. If as we hope, and as it seems likely, the tribunal rules in the Dutch government's favor. They will rule saying that the ship was illegally seized and the uh, ship and the, all 30 people should be released and be allowed to uh, sail back home. If that happens, 
it remains to be seen whether the Russian government will comply because they boycotted the, the tribunal last week. So that's roughly, it's a much longer story, and yeah. I invite your listeners to visit the Greenpeace website and follow it. It's uh, the footage of when the helicopter landed uh, has just been released. It's frightening to see. And, and you can see the peacefulness of our activists. Yes. The moment the, the, you know, they saw that the police were coming, they went onto the deck, they put their hands up. You can see them being uh, hit with the rifle butt and so on. And I would just conclude by saying, the messages that we hear through the letters from our colleagues is that they stand by what they did, they stand by the peacefulness of, uh, of the actions, and I am working 24-7 now together with the rest of Greenpeace and many others in civil society around the world to secure the release, and we would say quite emphatically, they are neither pirates nor hooligans. If anything, they are heroes, and even if people don't see them as heroes today, just like people didn't see Mandela and uh, Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks in their time saw them as hooligans and terrorists and so on. We have no doubt history will vindicate us and our colleagues will be uh, remembered as the heroes that they really are. Does one want to wait for history? Uh, I can't help feeling, although um, these guys are almost sort of like sacrificial lambs, is this in any way in your favour, in as much as it's drawing the world's attention to this unbelievably sort of archaic, heavy-handed approach? Um, do, do you hear what I'm saying? Is that Yes, yes. No, no, the irony is that the disproportionate response of elements within the Russian uh, state have uh, have actually made the uh, issue a much bigger issue around the world. I mean, it's it's amazing what's happening. Unlikely allies are stepping forward. You know, people who some people who I've not even contacted have contacted me to say, "What can I do? What can I say?" and so on. You know, on Saturday, you know, I met with Bono in Addis Ababa, and he's getting you two um, his uh, group involved. Mm. Um, uh, Paul McCartney today wrote a letter to President Putin, public letter. We've got uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, who has uh, intervened on our behalf, and, and there are literally thousands of people of influence who normally don't step forward. Uh, of course, the names of some of the people I met, certainly Archbishop Desmond Tutu, steps forward on every issue of injustice that he confronts, but some of the people are not generally always you know, on the side of fighting for justice, and they've stepped forward because they see that the, our children's future is at stake here, and we make no apologies, no apologies for peaceful civil disobedience. That's what delivered the end of slavery, colonialism, apartheid, civil rights, and so on, and history teaches us that when humanity has faced a terrible injustice, those injustices only go away when decent men and women stand up and say enough is enough and no more, I'm prepared to put my life on the line. I'm prepared to go to prison if necessary. And, 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 and that's the spirit of Greenpeace. I think the bottom line is exactly as you say, our children's future is at stake, all our children's future. Kumi Naidu, thank you so much. It's been um, 
It's been fascinating. I can't say it's been wonderful because uh, what you've had to tell us is really quite frightening, but I'm going to do exactly as you suggest and refer people to your website if they would like to know more and if they would like to know what they can do to help uh, get the Arctic 30 out. Thank, so, thank you very much. And if any of your listeners would like mm. to join us on Saturday, it's a global day of action in solidarity with the Arctic 30. We will be having an African drumming protest. The details on our website here in Johannesburg. Fantastic. Thank you very much. With you there in spirit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kumi Naidu, and he is the International uh, Executive Director of Greenpeace. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what he's been discussing there and perhaps do your bit, maybe uh, vo make your voice heard, it's greenpeace.org. Greenpeace.org. We will put that up on our Facebook page. It's greenpeace.org, and uh, we'll do that just now. Well, I don't think I need to remind you about the devastation that's been left in the wake of Typhoon Haiyan. It's been on your screens and the paper in your in your face, in all our faces ever since it happened. And it's, as you know, killed over 2,000, displaced many more and affecting something like 11 million people. Well, I guess as humans, we're always looking for reasons, aren't we? Looking for reasons and, and looking for someone or something to blame. Now, this is said to be the worst storm in history. But the question is, are such storms going to be regular parts of our future? And is human activity really to blame? Well, on the line we have Dr. Bob Scholes. He's a systems ecologist at CSIR. That's the uh, Centre for Scientific uh, Research Institute, um, or thereabouts. And he's been studying global change for a very long time, since the 90s, and, and climate change. Well, we've got him on the line. Dr. Scholes, hi there. Good evening, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. You've been studying changes in the climate changes and global changes generally since the 90s. In, in your opinion, is this is the start of a whole new pattern, this worst storm in history? Is it something that we can expect to see more of? The evidence is that we can expect to see more of this. And the you know, broad scientific consensus, not my opinion, but uh, of all the you know, scientists who are involved in this kind of research, is that it's more likely than not that uh, we have seen an increase in uh, severe tropical storm activity over the period of record, and it will continue into the future. And what's the cause? We know sixty-four thousand exactly, dollar question. We it, well, it's not actually to me such a difficult question. We know exactly what causes tropical cyclones. A typhoon, incidentally, is just the specific name for what's more generally called a tropical cyclone, exactly the same phenomena that we get off the coast of Mozambique and Madagascar. It's the same things, it's just that they call them typhoons and we call them tropical cyclones. And there are basically five um, factors which have to come together if you're going to get a typhoon. You have to have a warm sea surface temperature. You have to have an unstable atmosphere with high humidity in it. You have to have a little if you like, a dimple in the circulation of the world, a pre-existing depression, then you need to have that accelerated by a force called the Coriolis force, which is you know, to do with the uh, rotation of the Earth. And uh, then you have to have a very technical thing called low vertical wind shear. Now, that we know for a fact is what causes typhoons. And of those things, most of those go up with global warming. So it's really not a difficult causal case to make that if the sea is getting warmer and we're very certain that the sea is getting warmer we have measurements around that and the you know the, the particulars around the 
mixed layer on the lower atmosphere are, are, are changing to promote this sort of thing, then it's not, in fact, rocket science to say these things are more likely to be in the future. Incidentally, the debate is really not so much about whether, the, whether these things will be more frequent. The, the frequency is not the key issue here. It's whether they, we will have more severe ones okay. so, so that what was previously perhaps Category 2 and Category 3 will become Category 4, Category 5. So, yeah, so it's not the frequency, but the extreme, uh, the extreme nature of these conditions. And and it's mostly the wind speed that causes mm. the damage. You know, this particular uh, cyclone was uh, clocked at a um, an absolute peak speed of three hundred and seventy eight kilometers an hour. That was the the, the, the peak gust. There were sustained. Uh, minute-long gusts of over 300 kilometers an hour, and the 10-minute gusts velocity was 235 kilometers an hour. The the previous record storm it was clocked at uh, at, at, at about the same uh, uh, speed as that, about the sort of you know 300 uh, 300 kilometers an hour. But at that point, the anemometer broke, so we actually don't know what the you know the highest wind speed in the past was. The, 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 the weather speed measurer broke at uh, 300 kilometres an hour. Makes you feel that the gods are angry, doesn't it? You know, as things get worse, it becomes more and more extreme and more sort of hectic, I suppose. You know, one of the things that I don't know if you were listening to us talking to Kumi Naidu earlier, but one of the things he said that when he went to the Arctic, somebody said, well, what's the Arctic got to do with Africa? But I'm just thinking that all these things, while they may be happening on the other side of the world, one way or another, they connect us all. So none of us is in a position, none of us is, in, is an island. You know, we, we're not in a position to say, well, it's happening over there, it's not our problem, because it is becoming our problem. Well, it is our problem, not because their cyclones are going to wander over here, but we have cyclones of our own. You know, Southern Africa is actually very lucky that it's protected from the impact of most tropical cyclones by the presence of Madagascar. When cyclones go over land, they run out of steam, so to speak. And the, the cyclones that come screaming in from the warming Indian Ocean smack into Madagascar and cause absolute mayhem there. But then they you know, run out of oomph by the time they reach our coast. And only very occasionally do they wander in over uh, Mozambique mm -hmm. and over South Africa. Over South Africa, they mostly present as as just very, very heavy rainfall events. They've lost most of their wind velocity when they come here. They just dump a lot of rainfall. And that's a problem that causes great flooding. Certainly a problem for Madagascar, who bear the brunt of it. I, I've spoken to people who've been on the island when, they've, when one of them has been passing, and I believe it's really, really very frightening. But going back to the, the five factors that cause a typhoon or a tropical right. cyclone, those are all as a result of global warming. So it's, it's in, within human hands to do something about it, to reverse the situation? Well, all of those factors have occurred over time immemorial. Uh, you know, cyclones are not something which humans created. They existed before they were humans. The question is, are they becoming more severe? Are the severe ones becoming more common? And there, there really is a smoking gun that that is the case. And therefore, you know, the only thing you can actually do about them is to reduce the, the factors that are causing them, reduce the global warming, essentially. 
it's you know it's very it's very um humbling it makes one feel very much like a very tiny cog in a very huge uh in a huge wheel because what's really good how are we all to help really are we all going to go around turning off our lights or switching to solar power stop driving cars or stop flying is you know it's really going to take a global concerted effort to change this that's absolutely correct and but you know global concerted efforts will require efforts from everyone so i don't wish to discount anyone's individual efforts yes they do only make a tiny difference but the sum of tiny differences will what be what changes the world but you know as importantly as taking those individual actions um, is to let our governments know that this is actually a very important factor and that mustn't be you know put on the back burner or regarded as uh, unimportant or non-urgent as we also heard from Kumi Naidu, though, very often governments are swayed not just by popular, popular public opinion, but also about the money that big corporates are, are, you know, able to sort of wield power as a result of that. If you had uh, one thing that you were able to say to our own government, or perhaps at COP19, uh, what would it be? Our government has played quite a pivotal role in the climate negotiations in the past because it is both a developed and a developing country. It, we are huge you know, fossil fuel users. In a sense, we're in the same category as, as Saudi Arabia, let's say, but we're also highly exposed to the impacts of climate change. So we can kind of see both sides of the coin. It will, it will hurt us to move away from fossil fuels. It'll hurt us more if the world doesn't. And so we're in a position to really be the bridge and the, the, the honest broker in this process. And we did that for a number of years. It didn't lead to the success we wanted at Copenhagen, but that doesn't mean it's not the right strategy and the right thing to do. So just lastly, we, I mean, from, from everything you said, it seems if we don't change our way soon, if something doesn't happen, or, you know, throughout the world, if something doesn't happen, habits aren't changed, we could see many more such typhoons and, and tropical cyclones? And yes, we certainly will, and that's only more, you know, one of the litany ones. of problems that we face. Not all of the climate change impacts are as dramatic as, uh, as cyclones. They can be just the steady increment in, in daily temperatures which cause problems in agriculture and problems with human health. Perhaps we need to see them as a one big fat wake-up call because I'm looking at the list here of all the countries who have thrown aid at the situation. I mean, that aeroplanes have gone in, navies have gone in. You know, we can't keep doing this sort of thing, but perhaps this is a wake-up call for the whole world to say we have to do something. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Bob Scholes. I'm, I've no doubt that we'll speak again. It seems that you have these concerns right at your fingertips and perhaps you've got more wisdom to impart to us again another day, but hopefully it won't be to talk about another, another typhoon. Thank you for your time. I would, I would hesitate to say it was a pleasure, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was good talking to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Bob Scholes, and he's a system ecologist at the CSIR and uh, certainly some fuel for thought there. Well, on the subject of climate change seems to be a, a focus on the show right now, but certainly a big focus at COP19, that's the United Nations Conference of the Parties, part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where they discuss, as you know, all things to do with climate and uh, they thrash all these things out. Well, who's there right now is Rashmi Mistry. Now, she's the Economic Justice Campaign Advisor for Oxfam, and we've got her on the line to give us some input. Hi, Rashmi. 
Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. What's the, uh, as I can say, climate like there at COP19? (laughs) (laughs) Cold, miserable and wet. (laughs) But, uh, yes, uh, that's outside the negotiations, but not too far inside the negotiations as well. Um, We've uh, had quite a busy week. It's uh, it's coming towards the end of the first week of the negotiations here. And I have to say, it it, it started quite dramatically. I think... um, I wasn't able to hear what Bob was talking about, but you mentioned a typhoon. Um, and we obviously kicked off the conference just as um, the full sort of terrible impact of typhoon um, Hein was, was um, being understood. Um, and it obviously sort of put a, I suppose... Oh, have we lost you? Oh, it sounds like we might have lost Rashmi there. Um, gosh, we were just about to find out uh, everything that's going on. But just whilst we try and get her back on the line, let me just, if you'd like to know a little bit more, uh, www.cop19.gov.pl is the uh, is the website if you want to check it out, www.cop19.gov.pl. Incidentally, whilst I'm giving out websites, let me just remind you that if you want to know a little bit more about what Greenpeace are up to, and perhaps do something about those Arctic 30, those guys who have all been holed up in a, in a Russian prison. It's greenpeace.org, greenpeace.org. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're at uh, enviro at safm.co.za, enviro at safm.co.za. Seem to run out of time a little bit on the show tonight because, in fact, what we're going to be, what we're hoping to do is hear a little bit about cell phones and the uh, connection of cell phones with uh, something called cell phone allergy. Also be hoping to hear a little about from uh, World Wildlife Fund South Africa to find out about the conference that they've got coming up tomorrow. But I think we've got Rashmi back on the line. Hi, Rashmi. Rashmi, are you there? Okay, Rashmi, are you? Oh, cell phone. Okay, right. We'll see if we can get Rashmi back on the line. Okay, we are indeed going to move on. Don't these things just happen? I don't think we can put it down to climate change. I think it's just one of those things. But as I promised, we are going to be talking a little bit about cell phones. We, we talk about the big picture things up till now, but uh, maybe we should think concentrate on the smaller things, smaller things like your very own cell phone that you carry around in your pocket. A bit of a, a, bit of a thorny and itchy thing, uh, topic, this one. But we heard recently from Pharma Dynamics, we uh, heard from Mariska Fouché, who's the spokesperson for Pharma Dynamics, that they've been receiving recently a huge amount of calls from people asking what they can do about the itchy red bumps and blisters that fall along their jawbone, which is often referred to as cell phone allergy. Well, my goodness me. Got Mariska on the line. Hi, Mariska. Hi, Nancy. Um, I haven't heard about cell phone allergy. Now, I mean, you've been inundated with phone calls. Is this something new? Has it been going for a long time? I think the reason for that mostly is because um, we refer to it as a cell phone allergy, but it's an actual fact, an allergic reaction to nickel okay. that is often contained in the metal surfaces of cell phones. And um, if, you, if you have prolonged exposure to this metal that is contained in those surfaces it, and you are sensitized towards the, the, the allergen, then it can cause an allergic reaction. Because one of the things that we often get sort of freaked out about with, in, in terms of cell phones is whether or not you're going to get a brain tumor, you're going to get cancer, this or that, um, you know, because of its, its proximity to your head and all the other ingredients and chemicals that are inside of cell phones. But this feels more like sort of a surface level thing. 
Absolutely, it is. It is. Uh, nickel is mostly contained in metal surfaces, so it's mostly your phones that have a keypad or in the in the uh, LCD frames of the the, the uh, cell phones or even in the headsets. Um, and some tests even even were conducted on on the metal logos of certain cell phone brands on the cell phone. And if you if you use your quite regularly and for prolonged periods of time, um, you can sensitize. And, and what we've seen is that, that females or, or women are often more sensitive towards nickel and, and uh, present with these allergies more, more often because of the fact that they possibly were exposed to this substance or this metal um, earlier on due to, to jewelry containing nickel. Oh, my goodness. Do all phones contain nickel? Not all phones. Your safer mm. options to use are those that um, the newer ones that we get nowadays, the the, the, the cell phones with the touch screens. Um, what a study in uh, done in New York at Winthrop University uh, that was conducted last year, they tested about seventy two phones um, across a whole range of different branded um, uh, brands of cell phones, and they found that your flip phones or your phones with a Keypads are the ones that are mostly um, sort of uh, responsible for these allergies and contain nickel, and that your 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 touchscreen phones are safer options to use. I would imagine there are an awful lot of people who are having a quick look in the mirror to see if they're coming out in bumps and rashes. Are they usually sort of allergenic prone people or allergy prone people who are suffering, or can it happen to anyone? It can happen to anyone if you are sensitized towards the substance. But what we what we must keep in mind that a nickel allergy um, usually develops, as I've said, due to the repeated or prolonged exposure. And uh, even though it's not life threatening, and and it's just an, a, a rash that can be irritating and itchy, and uh, it, it as I said is not life threatening. But once you are sensitive to the substance in a specific area on the skin, um, you will develop a rash when you are exposed to it. Again. Again. The alarm bells went up, or the sort of the flags went up, when you mentioned that women can be a little bit more sensitive, very often because they've, uh, you know, already been exposed to nickel jewellery. I'm thinking, if, if a woman is pregnant, or if, a, you know, is it likely to be harmful? I mean, you say it's just an allergy and it's just sort of surface level, but is it? Um, it is basically a contact dermatitis. In other words, it's, it's on the surface of the skin. So it's not really um, systemic allergic reaction so that, in other words, happening in the, in the entire body. It's usually just local to where the skin was exposed to the nickel. So it's difficult to say whether or not it, it can have um, an extra risk for, for pregnant women, but it is, it's not likely to because of the fact that it is more a local reaction to, to the metal. I mean, this is not really your area. You're a di you're a, a pharmaceutical company, really. But do you, I mean, are the cell phone companies responding to this? I mean, it's not just here in South Africa. Presumably, this is a sort of a universal problem that people have been confronted with. Are, are there is there sort of uh, attempts to try and find alternative substances? Um, I wouldn't be able to say whether or not it's, it's cell phone companies specifically, but what we do know is, for instance, in the EU, they have um, set a, a, a nickel directive in place to try to guide manufacturers of different items that can contain nickel 
to to change their manufacturing processes to not contain this, this substance. And, and there's actually quite a big drive in the EU at the moment to reduce nickel content and, if possible, take it away if, uh, from, from these substances or from these um, items completely. And um, it's, you know, as I say, I think it's, it's on the radar and people should be on the lookout for it. But um, we hope that the manufacturers will take note of that and find ways of, of manufacturing these items that do not contain harmful substances mm. like nickel. Well, what your area really is, is, is doing something about it. So what do you recommend? I mean, is there some sort of um, topical ointment that you can put on to get rid of it? Basically, the, the only way that you can treat this contact dermatitis due to the nickel exposure to nickel, and if you are sensitive towards it, is to treat the symptoms. So it, you, you're looking at the red itchy, red bumps, and sometimes blisters, and it can also present with skin lesions or, or eczema. So basically, uh, the best advice is to ask your doctor or your pharmacist for an oral antihistamine if, if the itchiness is a problem. And then more often than not, they would probably prescribe a very light corticosteroid cream, um, important to use it as prescribed or recommended by your pharmacist because steroid creams can make the skin thin as well. So you, you, you can't overuse it. And the best, best treatment of this contact dermatitis if you are sensitive to nickel oh. wireless earpiece or use a phone that doesn't have a touchpad or, or, a, or a, um, yeah. a, a keypad, but rather a touchscreen. Gosh, Mariska, thank you very much. It turned out to be a little bit of a health item, but I think it's definitely something worth thinking about or worth knowing about because knowledge is power. Mariska Fouché, thank you. Spokesperson for Pharma Dynamics. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more, their website or a website that we recommend you try is allergyexpert.co.za, allergyexpert.co.za. We'll put that up on our Facebook page as well. Well, I think that we might have the elusive Rashmi mystery back on the line all the way from darkest Warsaw, where it's apparently very cold. Hi, Rashmi. Hello, yes, I'm back. <laughs> okay, we're going to cut straight to the chase. So yep. um, what, are the, what are the tensions? What are the issues? Listen, there are two um, main issues and, and tensions here in, in Warsaw. Um, they're not particularly new, but they are ever, ever more urgent now. So the first one is around emissions. Um, the UN talks uh, had decided many years ago that rich countries were going to cut their emissions in order to try and stop climate change. And so that's emissions from uh, things like burning coal, gas and oil, um, from fossil, fossil fuels primarily, but there are other sources as well. But um, that hasn't happened um, far enough. So rich countries haven't delivered on their commitments of of cutting their emissions. We know that rich countries have, you know, survived and, and built their economies on burning fossil fuels and, yeah. and spewing out carbon dioxide and, and getting rich on it. Now it's time for them to cut those emissions, but that's not happening enough. And the second thing is that um, within the UN agreements, it was also decided that rich countries would support developing countries with the finance to be able to um, adapt and cope with the, the ever-changing climate and the climate change crisis that we're, we're due to see, um, but also to develop in a more sustainable way. Um, and that's not happening either. We, we're seeing there is a massive shortfall in, in finance for climate, and rich countries are not pledging or committing how much they're going to give, when they're going to give it, um, and you know, despite a, a promise to deliver $100 billion 
uh, per year by 2020, there's nothing on the table yet that developed countries can, can count on. So those are probably the two crux issues. Both are interrelated because um, developing countries are saying, look, we can't do anything without the finance. Um, and that, and rich countries really have to live up to the responsibilities. They cause this problem, so they should be cutting emissions more. They cause the problem, so they should be delivering the support and financial means for developing countries to cope. So two really sort of hot issues here, I'm afraid. Yeah, and issues that sort of, you know, they tell a story in as much as inequality seems to get worse, not better. You know, we don't seem to be balancing things out. Poorer countries continue in a way to suffer and richer countries continue in a way to get richer. Who are the, who are the climate police? Who is to say, listen, you guys, uh, the rich countries, first world countries, you are not doing enough. Whose voice is being heard there? Um, there are many voices. Most developing countries are being really, really vocal around this. Um, the developing countries sort of work in, in blocks, I suppose, and we have a, a block called the Africa Group, which South Africa are part of. Um, South Africa are also part of a, a sort of a, a, a semi-BRICS sort of block called the Basics, which includes China and India and Brazil. Um, and so they're all you know, saying very similar things around the need to cut emissions and around the need to deliver um, finance. Um, I think the developed countries are, are sticking to their guns, unfortunately. Um, they are um, blaming the financial crisis. They are blaming national circumstances, saying that they can't move fast in, enough. But in the meantime... The impact on developing countries is getting stronger and stronger. We, we, we've seen the terrible tragedy in, in, in Philippines. Mm. Whilst we can't claim that that's because of climate change, we know that climate change will increase the severity and intensity of those types of events. So we, we could see more and more of those types of events, um, destroying lives and, and, and killing people. Um, so, you know, there's a real sense of urgency um, to, to try and get some sort of commitments delivered, but it's just not happening fast enough. Rosmi, I don't know how many cops you've been to, but you know the sort of sense, certainly for judging from a slim experience that we had with the one here, that right at the end there was a sort of you know right at the end of everyone saying, please let's come with some sort of uh, some sort of way forward. Uh, you know, I know it's going on for another week. You're only there for another day, mm. but is there a hope? Is there a line over which? it's hoped we will cross? What we'd like to see here um, out of Warsaw, it, it's, it's not going to be the end game because the, the next big moment for a, a bigger deal will happen in two years' time in 2015. And that's what this, this conference is, is working towards, or most of this conference is working towards. But, but this, this means that we're only two years away, and so real progress has to be made. And so there do need to be more commitments from rich countries to say, okay, between now and certainly when the next deal comes into place, which is actually 2020, we're going to ratchet up our, our emissions cuts. Um, they really need to do that. And also, they really need to commit uh, the finance. So there's, a, as I said, over the next couple of years, there's a huge gap in finance. Yeah, I think, um, I think gap so is they the... could gap. actually 
commit and promise that money right now. Yeah, gap is the operative word. Rush me, we're out of time, but thank you very much and stay warm. Not too warm, but warm <laughs> thank enough. You. Thanks very much. <laughs> Take care. Rashmi Mistry, she's uh, with Ox uh, Family Economic Justice, campaign advisor for climate change. Thanks very much. And thanks very much, team. And I am so sorry that we weren't able to get to talk to uh, Mornay Duplessis, director of WWF, because tomorrow they're going to be having a, a conference at the Forum Centre in Bryanston. And the, the nature of it is resilient and inclusive economy for South Africa. Hopefully we'll perhaps get a little bit of the feedback from what happens tomorrow. So thanks very much. Uh, if you want to find out more, www.f.org.za. And if you want to find out more from us, we're at the Enviro Show on SAFM. That's our Facebook page. And uh, if you'd like to pop us a mail, enviro at safm.co.za remains for me to say thank you very much to the team and thank you very much once again to Stephen Kirker, who's standing by with news and music. Hi, no, Stephen. I'm sitting down, actually. <laughs> it's late in the evening. I'm not going to stand up anymore. Thank you very much, Nancy, uncovering all the important issues. Um, and uh, yes, uh, if you can't sleep now, <laughs> after all the doom and gloom, it's not all doom and gloom. Do your bit. Uh, chill out with SAFM's nighttime music through until midnight. We'll get into that after the news at 10 o'clock or thereabouts.